Yeah, I'm personally not so worried about uh, like the Zoom bombing problem and so on as others. I, I have a pretty fun class, I think, and we're pretty interactive. And usually during the semester, I'll get at least one or two phishing attempts against me. And mm. instead of just ignoring the phishing, I usually engage with the fishers and share the interactions with the students as a learning experience slash Interesting. hilarious. So I, I'm actually been kind of like hoping that someone will try to Zoom bomb my lecture so that I can like try to engage in a dialogue with them. But like, hey, what made you think this was like, a fun thing to do. You're listening to What the Tech, a podcast powered by the Computer Science Department of UCalgary, here to deconstruct complex computer science concepts bit by bit and explain what the tech is going on. My name is Paolo. My name is Lynn. Our guest today is a professor at UCalgary whose research focuses on privacy and applied cryptography. In this episode, we talk about how to protect your privacy online and what the tech is up with soon. We also go through a rather interesting scenario relating to smart homes. Without further ado, please welcome our guest, Ryan Henry. So uh, welcome to the show, Ryan. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So why don't you start us off by talking about sort of what you're doing right now? Um, Yeah. So my main research area is applied cryptography. I spend most of my time working on cryptography that has to do with protecting privacy and to you know, some extent to civil liberties and human rights in general. Uh, but the, the main focus is definitely privacy. So this includes things like trying to re-architect the way that current internet services work so that we still get all of the benefits we know and love, but we don't have to divulge so much of our information to big companies or unknown third parties and so on. I'm also looking at things like censorship circumvention and censorship resistance so people in countries that are less free than we are here in Canada can enjoy the same sort of access to information and ability to communicate that we do. Um, Some tools to help keep activists safe. So if you happen to be somebody who's traveling to one of these countries that is uh, less free and open than Canada, how can you make sure that you don't end up disappearing because of the human rights activities that you're performing there and make sure that the world can actually learn about what you find. And then also another thing that I've been doing sort of on the back burner or on and off in the back burner since I started doing this is looking at ways to balance the sort of privacy that the technologies I like to study afford people with accountability. Because as soon as you give people the ability to have sort of extreme privacy, then there's some subset of the population abuses this. So it kind of goes both ways. And I like to look at how can we try to get the best of both worlds and make sure that those of us who need or want privacy can have it. And people who want to abuse it can only go so far before the tools actually stop them from from doing abusing it any further. Cool. Amazing. Very, very interesting. I want to go back and kind of ask, when did you first get to know that you wanted to go into like all this computer science stuff? How did you get started with computer science? Do you remember? Yeah, sort of a weird non-linear path. When I was four-ish, my mom bought an 8086 computer, which most people did not have computers in their home at the time. We weren't a particularly wealthy family, and yet an 8086 was a very expensive thing. And I don't really know what possessed my mom to go out and spend so much money on a thing that there was no indication uh, or at least most people didn't believe was going to be as big of a deal as it is now, but I got, a, got an early start <laughs> on computers. I think I was probably still like five when I started transcribing code from a book in QBasic into the computer and making code someone else had wrote, run. 
I, I thought that I was coding, but I was really just copying code. But I mean, by the time I was six or seven, I was tinkering around with things. And I was always sort of the computer guy. And I spent my time through university fixing computers. And then I actually went to a technical college, a community college, and learned to be like an IT sysadmin type person. Did that for a little bit, actually, just at the end of my program as like a practicum as part of the program and realized I do not want to do this. But I'm good at coding, so I'll go back to university and learn to code. Oh. And I went to university. They made me take calculus, which I was not keen on. Actually, there was a pretest on day one, and they said, if you score below 50 on this, you should drop to class, take some remedial courses. And I got like 20% or something. But I resented the suggestion that I should take remedial courses. So instead, I dropped some of the CS classes I was in and signed up for some of the harder first and second year math classes and had a schedule filled with math classes and decided I'm getting an A plus on all of them just to say screw you to the professor for suggesting I should drop. And then I did that and realized I actually really like math. And I, I don't know, I, I gravitated towards crypto because it was the intersection between computer science and math. And now I'm here. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Crazy. So uh, how would you personally define crypto, cryptography? So my view of cryptography is quite broad. A lot of people, when they think of cryptography, just think of the sort of encryption that happens when you go to websites. This is a way to scramble messages so that other people can't read them. But in fact, there's a huge collection of tools that fall under what we call cryptography, ranging from the standard encryption to things that ensure integrity. So you want to make sure that when you send messages, even if some very clever individual that happens to intercept these messages and tamper with them, they shouldn't be able to do so in a way that the recipient is unaware that this tampering has happened. I've been doing research recently on how do we build privacy-preserving e-commerce systems so you can like download stuff without the server that you're talking to, knowing what you're downloading, but then also do things like build recommendation systems on this using fancy mathematical ideas. And when you take this whole set of I guess mathemagic, it would be a nice way to, to characterize it, put it all together. That's, uh, that's cryptography. I love that. Wonderful. Mathemagic. And so the basis of all of that then is, um, because of privacy, could you kind of like go into what you believe, like the general definition of privacy is? Yeah. So the general definition that is usually used in the privacy research community is something that referred to as informational self-determinism. So the idea that information about me is mine and I should have full control over how it gets disclosed, how it gets used, when I share it with somebody, what they can do with it and with whom they're able to share it further and what those people are allowed to do and so on and so forth. And so anytime data or information about myself is used in a way that I did not intend, that would be considered a breach of privacy. Whereas if I am happy to post pictures of myself on Facebook and make them public, and this is an intentional thing that I'm doing, then it's not necessarily a breach of privacy. Although in many cases, it is the case that the general population maybe doesn't understand some of the implications. And so there's also a component of just hashing out the implications of certain types of sharing. So that might influence what they intend to do. Is there is there a specific kind of strategy that you'd recommend uh, someone you know who's, who's concerned about their privacy um, to maybe go about to ensure that they're um, their information isn't breached? Yeah, it, it's, it's very hard for just the average unsophisticated end user to avoid breaches. I mean, even in, in my own case, uh, 
my information has been breached by third parties many times for reasons that are completely out of my control. When I first, my first position at a university was in the States. I got my social security number, gave it to the university so that they could enroll me in the health plan. And within one week of having my SSN, within 48 hours of being enrolled in health insurance, I got an email from Anthem, the insurance provider, telling me that my social security number was part of a data breach that affected like 130 million people or some huge number like that. And that, I mean, there's nothing I could do about it. There's certainly nothing anybody uh, outside of Anthem could have possibly done about that. And so, so given that that's sort of the reality of the world, there's not a lot you can do except be very careful about who you deal with. And there's some general advice, like don't reuse passwords. But as soon as somebody learns your password on one site, it's a common practice to something called a stuffing attack, where you basically go to every website you can think of and try to log into that user's account with those same credentials. And so if you're reusing passwords or very other very simple things like that might have a huge impact. But beyond that, it's kind of up to the technologists, up to people like me to entice industry to adopt better protections to safeguard the end user. It's not reasonable to expect the end user to to be the ones keeping themselves safe, I don't think. Right. And so you say it's not reasonable to expect the end users to keep themselves safe, um, but they should still be informed, right? Like there's still a little bit of onus, at least on the end user to be aware of how they interact with the internet, right? Yeah, I mean, the onus is somewhat shared. It, it certainly is incumbent upon an individual to to think through and to have some awareness of what they're sharing. In fact, yesterday I'm teaching this uh, explorations and security and privacy class right now. Mm-hmm. And yesterday and Monday they did their first tutorial that involved just as the last exercise, I told them, go to Facebook and request your data and just look at what they have on you, go through it and write down your thoughts about what you found. And the thoughts that were posted about what people found on Facebook were quite interesting. People were shocked and appalled to find out what Facebook has on them. People who Mm -hmm. have gone through hoops to make sure that they're not sharing their location were like, why does Facebook know exactly where I live? How did they figure out exactly where I live? Why? There's no indication of where they learned this, but I know that I have never consented to this and I have every opportunity opted out of sharing my location. And so then I'm able to give them you know, some suggestions of how I would figure out their location if I wanted it. And these are all things that, unless you completely opt out of the digital world, you kind of just have to deal with the fact that there are individuals out there who make a living by finding clever ways to learn things about you that you're intentionally trying to prevent them from learning. Uh, so this is yeah. why I say the, it's a it's a shared burden, right? That it, The onus is on us to understand what we're consenting to and to make sure that we don't consent to things that we shouldn't be. But I think a, a huge amount of the responsibilities on industry. Yeah, I like that, uh, the shared onus thing. And it actually relates to the next point that we wanted to cover, which was Zoom and the Zoom bombing. And I know you mentioned before the podcast that you're not so much worried about Zoom bombing. I'm I'm not so concerned about Zoom bombing. My lectures are not something that I'm trying to keep secret, right? I mean, I'm, I'm happy to post my lectures publicly for the whole world to see. So in terms of confidentiality, lectures are just not something that I'm considering confidential. Uh, and Zoom bombing in my particular class is not such a big concern because it's the explorations and security and privacy class. And 
you know, looking at misbehavior online is one of the things that we do. So if somebody targets the class during lecture, that's almost like a learning experience for us. I would imagine mm -hmm. that for most other professors, it would be like this horrible um, event that you wouldn't want. And I, I would, I would obviously be upset if somebody like zoom bombed and threw porn on the screen or started putting uh, thing anti-Semitic slurs or something uh, yeah. like that. I mean, but the actual Zoom bomb itself, not a big deal. And students can't just share their screens without my permission. So I'm... So um, just, so we, we were just like kind of your, um, your very casual, I guess, definition. What is Zoom bombing um, for anyone so that doesn't know? Zoom bombing is jumping into a, a webinar or lecture or whatever that uh, you're not supposed to be in. And just being a nuisance. So either getting loud and interrupting the person who's trying to present or sharing your screen with something offensive or just basically the, the equivalent of trolling on Zoom. If you get the details of some meeting, you join and you make your presence known. But, yeah. yeah. From a technological standpoint, how are people able to even do that? Um, I know I, like there's Joel kind of briefly mentioned this idea of end-to-end -end encryption. Could you go into a little bit of yeah, that? Yeah, so end-to-end -end encryption doesn't have a huge role in Zoom bombing per se. I think Zoom bombing is mostly from when a Zoom ID, like the meeting ID, is shared too widely. And so people who should never have learned it, learn it. There's also been claims, at least from some of my students, that have said, you know, the, the professors that get Zoom bombed in some cases are happening because the students in their class think the class is maybe boring or uninteresting or don't like the professor or whatever the case may be, and therefore actually go out of their way to share the meeting ID in hopes mm -hmm. that somebody will Zoom bomb because that just makes it a little more interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that, that's basically what Zoom bombing is. If you can get access because you know the meeting ID, then you get in and that's it. And that's, as far as I know, the only way that they're doing it. There was, I believe, a, a bit of a bug in older versions of Zoom that made it easy for people to find IDs for meetings rather mm -hmm. than have to learn them uh, from somebody who knows the meeting or from the meeting invitation. And then they would just randomly go into things. Um, but I think most of it is just somebody shared that meeting ID too widely. End-to-end mm -hmm. -end encryption is actually, this is the much more troubling thing that can happen with Zoom. So I mentioned that I consider my lectures to be pretty public. I don't really care if somebody who shouldn't be in the class is listening in because it's a lecture. I mean, I'm happy to teach anybody who wants to learn. Mm -hmm. But there are lots of much more sensitive conversations that are happening by Zoom. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, a lot of people have been doing doctor's appointments and so on by Zoom. Oh, lots crazy. of important business. There was even the uh, UK Parliament met via Zoom for private deliberations and so on. Yeah. I, think, yeah. I believe the Canadian government officially banned the use of Zoom for that sort of thing because right. of um, security and privacy concerns. And so these are where end-to-end -end encryption becomes super important. And Zoom isn't. Zoom is not end-to-end -end encrypted. So end-to-end -end encryption refers to the idea that when I'm talking to you, I should be the one encrypting it directly with a key that only you can use to decrypt. And so the middleman, in this case, Zoom, wouldn't have access to the raw data. But in the case of Zoom, I'm actually encrypting it to Zoom. And then Zoom is decrypting it and re-encrypting it to you. So as it goes over the wire, it is always encrypted. But it's not encrypted in a way that prevents Zoom from actually having access to it. And I, I wouldn't... I, there's a tendency to say, well, Zoom is just insecure and this is, you know, a big problem with Zoom. But in, in fact, it's not 
easy to properly do end-to-end -end encryption for something like video. Why is it so challenging? The thing that really makes uh, the end-to-end -end encryption difficult is support for conversations like this where there are three of us on the conversation. If there's two parties, then doing end-to-end -end encryption is comparatively quite straightforward. As soon as you introduce multiple parties, the techniques involved in actually getting strong, there, there's this notion called forward secrecy that cryptographers like to strive for in real-time communication, which basically says that if one of us becomes compromised at some point in time, our key material gets leaked to an attacker, everything that happened before that point should remain perfectly secret. So the the compromise of our key material will, of course, allow the attacker to learn everything that happens from that point forward, but shouldn't allow them to learn everything that already happened in the past. Mm -hmm. And this is much more difficult to accomplish when you have group messaging or group video calls than one-on-one. -on -one. So I, while there's definitely room for improvement, and while there definitely should be improvement, I think it's sort of unfair to just blame Zoom as if this is unique to Zoom and a shortcoming of Zoom and them just not caring about privacy. Okay, so we can forgive Zoom a little bit with encryption, but we should still be cautious, right? Um, what else is there to think about? So when you talk to Zoom, they have a lot of servers in the United States, and apparently they also have servers in, I believe it's Beijing, in China anyways. Uh, so as you send this video stream that's encrypted, the place where it's being decrypted is either the United States or China. And as far as I have read, I don't think they have servers in other countries. So probably, I mean, I, I don't have any inside knowledge either way, but I have no real reason to suspect that Zoom themselves are spying on people's conversations or have any shady motives other than, you know, selling a product and getting rich selling a product. But as soon as your data is decrypted in either the United States or China, then the governments of those countries have the ability to request that in the United States. Could be a national security letter, in which mm -hmm. case Zoom can't tell anybody that they've handed this over. In China, I don't even think they need anything as formal as a national security letter. Just let us hear this and then they get to hear it. And if this is, you know, company secrets or very sensitive information that may give you pause as to whether you actually want to be put in this position. And likewise, if somebody happens to just compromise Zoom, right, you have an insider at Zoom. It's not, not the company policy to do something shady, but if one engineer decides to do something shady, there's the potential that they could be listening in on calls. If somebody has compromised Zoom, uh, they might be able to listen in on calls that they want to listen into. Interesting. Yeah. So what I'm getting here so far is that Zoom isn't end-to-end -end encrypted, but it's hard to do it with video, so we shouldn't be too hard on Zoom. Um, and who we should really be worried about, from my understanding here, is um, people who are looking to find the information that could be leaked on Zoom, so attackers or the government. Um, and... Yeah, it, to me, it seems like it just goes back to that idea before of being aware, right? Uh, being aware of what we are putting out there and being more mindful about it. And I guess with that being said, just wrapping up these Zoom thoughts, should listeners still be concerned about Zoom? In, under normal circumstances, you shouldn't be too, too worried about Zoom. I've been using Zoom a lot recently. 
you should just be aware of the potential risks that come along with streaming video or audio or chat or anything else over the internet, whether it be through Zoom or uh, otherwise. And you should be skeptical of the security of almost all products, but be aware that Zoom is by no means superior to to the others in terms of the sort of security it can provide. Uh, anything you say on Zoom may possibly be heard by somebody who's not part of that call. And so you mm -hmm. should just be keeping all of this sort of thing in mind as you're using this technology that oh, for um, sure. people who are not anywhere near me might be overhearing this conversation and the other party might be recording everything that's happening and I just need to deal with that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a takeaway from Joel's episode too how all your data is inevitably just going to be out there. And, and you mentioned your Facebook activity in your class. And it seems like the only thing to do is almost just accept that your data is going to be out there. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I, as, as a person who tries to develop the technology to change that state of affairs, I, I find it hard to swallow that pill, but it's ultimately the the truth, I suppose. Mm -hmm. The current truth for now. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I understand that you also have some thoughts about smart homes and privacy. I think actually the, the situation in terms of smart homes is in many ways exponentially scarier than Zoom. There, there's a huge number of different smart devices. Some of them are quite good. Some of them are quite abysmal, but even the ones that are quite good are, they, they have some scary properties to them. Like for example, if you have a device made by Amazon or Google, these companies know what they're doing, right? They're, they're tech companies. They have some very smart engineers. They are not making rookie mistakes on security for the most part. So most likely they have got the encryption right and they're using it appropriately and so on. But they are both in the business of, well, particularly Google more so than Amazon, but both of them are in the business of collecting as much information about you as they can. And so when you put a device in your home that has an always on speaker that is listening, you should be thinking about that. Now, now these aren't broadcasting everything you say to Google. Some people are really afraid that like, if I talk in earshot of my Alexa, Amazon hears everything it says, or my Google home, that's not quite the case. They actually have limited ability to process a trigger word and only start broadcasting after they hear the trigger word. And then when you look at other, other devices, the level of security ranges from excellent to not so good to non-existent um, and you have to think about what these devices are doing and what what this means for the security of your home so if you have a a light with abysmal security this might be a way for people to get into your home network and from within your home network they might be able to access all kinds of things on devices that otherwise would have been perfectly safe because they don't have uh, security holes that the attacker could easily exploit. But once you're on the home network, they, they treat you as if you're supposed to be allowed to read this information. Yeah, so I'm aware that in previous lectures, you've illustrated how an attacker can basically hack your home. Uh, what does this mean? What, what can they do? The attacker can lock your doors because there are these elder care door locks that are designed to lock people with dementia in the house at nighttime so that they can't wander out without their caregivers being aware. I mean, mm -hmm. a, a laudable goal, but you have to be very careful with how you do this. Um, mm -hmm. And one of the problems with some models of these are when they lose power, they are locked. And so yes. say your house starts on fire and you lose power, 
that door is not opening. There are teddy bears that <coughs> talk to your kids and and some of these have cameras and so on, or, or there's lots mm-hmm. of like um, nanny cams and so on that are streaming over the internet. So I, I painted this uh, horrible picture of an attacker locking your door locks and watching through the teddy bear as it, this, this was a real attack against Belkin light bulbs. So the, the Belkin light bulbs are CFL bulbs, compact fluorescent lights. Fluorescent lights have this thing called a ballast. The ballast basically alternates the current back and forth at a specific rate, that make, and that makes the light light up. Right. So if you ever see a light that's flickering, it's because the ballast is misbehaving. But if you make it go way too fast, you can actually quite reliably make the light bulb explode and start on fire. And so these Belkin bulbs had a flaw where an attacker who just sent a packet saying, turn the light on, and then another packet said, turn it off, turn it on, turn it off, could make the light turn on and off at as high a rate as they wanted, which simulates a ballast flickering the direction of the current way too fast. So you could start a house on fire over the internet. So what if you were watching through the teddy bear as you locked the door and started the house on fire? And (laughs) (laughs) That's scary. That's scary. That is terrifying. (laughs) Yeah, so, so whereas Zoom might divulge some of your secrets if you're not careful, the IoT may very well just kill you and laugh at you as it happens, I guess is the moral. Oh my there goodness. Go. <laughs> Crazy. Crazy. So um, it's these smaller devices that I should be really worried about. Well, it depends what you mean by worried. I mean, you should assume that Google collects everything they can about you and uses it in ways that aren't necessarily in your best mm-hmm. interest. And you should assume that a Google Home facilitates that. Likewise for Amazon, right? They're not necessarily out to do harm, but they are out to make money. And if using your data in ways that you would prefer they don't facilitates making money, they're not going to to use your interests to dictate how they use that data. And so if you have an Alexa or a Google Home, you need to accept that you are feeding into that machine that is collecting your data. But you probably don't have to be super worried about the security implications of Alexa itself. That's fair. That's fair. All right. As a takeaway, whether relating to privacy, Zoom, smart homes, or anything like that, um, uh, what do you want to leave the listeners with? I think people just need to be aware of the potential risks of using these technologies and make sure that they're carefully balancing the risk with the convenience. There's lots of good reasons to use some of these things. And there's lots of good reasons not to use them. And the more you're aware and the more skeptical you are, or the more skeptical of the companies you're interacting with and how they're using your data, the more likely you are to make wise decisions about when you should and should not be using technology and how you should and should not be using that technology. And until folks like me are able to completely change the technology landscape, that's going to continue to be the reality. All right. All right. If people want to find your work or anything like that, where can they find you? Finding my, my work is relatively easy. I, I tend to publish stuff like on open access ePrint sites. And so you should be able to find my papers and not have to pay for them in most cases. Most of it is probably not something that the average listener is going to be able to directly uh, make much sense of because it is written for like a crypto research audience and not for the yeah. general public. There, there's a few exceptions to that. I have a, a paper about blockchain from the IEEE Security and Privacy magazine mm-hmm. and another paper on IoT security and privacy that will appear in the IEEE Security and Privacy magazine. But those are probably something that 
most listeners of this podcast would be able to completely understand. Most of the other stuff is probably, unless you're well-versed in cryptography, you'll read the introduction and then get lost after that. <laughs> well, that's what we're here for. There you go. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> for now, thank you again for being on the show and sharing with us yeah. all of your work. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning into What the Tech, a podcast powered by the Computer Science Department of UCalgary. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, follow us on Instagram at UFC underscore CPSC for more computer science content. If you have any questions or want to suggest future episode topics, you can also visit anchor.fm slash whatthetech-ucalgary. There, you can leave us a voice message with your questions for a chance to get featured in future episodes. Thanks again for listening. Join us next week for another episode of What the Tech.